0: So this week, we've seen a lot of censorship in terms of high tech deciding who should be speaking and who shouldn't and what they should say and what they shouldn't say. And I'm saying this, whether you agree with what they've done or not. One thing's for sure. There's a lot of hate on social media and all that hate hasn't been shut down. So that leaves us with a big question why is this any different? We have somebody called Ayatollah, who has openly said that we should shut down uh, and wipe Israel off the map and deny the Holocaust and many terrible things. And that was okay, still okay, for his posts to be up. And once there are boundaries, when will these boundaries end? So whilst this might be a concern, and whether you agree with it, or not, it's not my discussion. I'm, I'm not political here. I'm a rabbi, although some like to be political because then it makes you feel that someone's listening. But um, not from a p- political perspective at all. I just want to come in and throw in my idea, which is that as much as people may be afraid of the control, and by the way, whilst all this was happening, we also heard of the censorship of um, WhatsApp. You heard about WhatsApp where they said uh, you've got to be careful if you're signed on to WhatsApp. Uh, you, you don't know uh, if if you don't agree with Facebook's new uh, rules, they are going to use all your data. Which doesn't make sense to me anyway because till now they've used all our data somehow. They're not, and there's, nothing, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? No such thing as a free lunch. The idea here is that you know there's something that we can do to control it and something that we've always done and that's called turning it off and guess when we do that that's on shabbat right that's the time where we get to say we are in control no matter what happens in the world because at the end of the day yes people can limit us and we we are not always fully in our control a hundred percent in certain situations that's for sure but we are at the end of the day in control of our mind, no matter what situation we're in, whether it, whether a Jew in the Holocaust or a Jew is in 2020 or in a thousand years ago, we always had control of our minds and that somebody can never take away from us. So what I'm thinking is how amazing it is that we have Shabbat and especially during the pandemic where it's, you know, the internet's coming at real addiction and real danger. As much as it's great and I believe in it, which is why I'm using it, um, I really do believe in the power of the internet. But I also believe in the dangers that we're seeing in it as well. For instance, addiction. And I'm going to be speaking a bit more about its dangers, not so much about the benefits, which are huge, right? The benefits, if without 2020, without the internet would have killed us all. Not physically, right? But we needed it for sure. So Shabbat is when we get to be in control of me. And I believe that this is a thought of mine, it's a psychological thought, but the Jews in Germany, whilst they were going through the Holocaust, it, sometimes it's a wonder to me how people were so committed to the most, minor, it's, a, it's a requirement in the Torah that you should be committed when they tell, Shat when there's a time where all Jews are meant to be wiped out, so then we're required to, under all circumstances, to say, I am not going to listen to them, even if they're about to take my life. They force me to eat non-kosher. I don't care, I'm not listening to you. This is a time where you're trying to wipe out all Jews. I'm going to come against you specifically and not even eat some non-kosher. So um, what happened during the Holocaust, and this is something which is fascinating, is that people put themselves in tremendous danger in order to try and be slightly Jewish. Like Hanukkah. The stories of the nights of Hanukkah where they were in the barracks without clothes freezing, midwinter. They would at the end of the day, you know, use some of their rations and and buy their way into getting some kind of way to build their own menorah and get some oil, which they would steal from the from the Germans and light their candles for Hanukkah. And it's like these amazing stories of how they used like a potato and It was tremendous sacrifice. And you wonder to yourself, how do they have the courage to do that? What was that inner courage? And for sure, it's 100%, it's commitment and a deep understanding of what they're doing. It's not just Jews that didn't know what they were doing. If if Jews today, a lot of Jews today, would go through such a thing, I don't know if they would manage to cope with it because it's also knowing what I'm doing in order to be so committed. But one thing I would say, And that is, it was a sense of freedom for the people. Because here, the Germans have stripped the Jews from their humanity, taken off their clothes, made them naked, made them feel like dirt. And suddenly, I can actually show the Germans that I am free. And I'm not subjugated to your rulings. And that's by me maintaining my Judaism. Oh, that's what you don't want? And you're going to I'm not a slave to you. You're trying to dehumanize me. I'll humanize myself through my spiritual commitment to Judaism. And people found tremendous strength by when Yom Kippur came, by not eating that tra- tiny rations that would, that was impossible not to eat. I mean, if you didn't eat it, you're putting your life at risk. But they would get tremendous strength from it, knowing that that was their freedom. Does this make sense to you? So. When it comes to uh, anybody being concerned that your freedom is taken away from you, whether it's, and by the way, I'm saying this because I believe that violence needs to be stopped, but we also need to know how to stop it. And uh, high-tech companies definitely are not the ones to do it. And it's it's a real danger of how this is going to end up. I mean, the Jews could, all of a sudden, someone can easily snip out from different speeches of rabbis some sayings that they said, you know, take it completely out of context. You can do it out of all my classes that I've given. Take out snippets of my talks, put them together and show the most hateful speech ever. Easily. And in no time, you see how social media can blast into something massive. It's, It's like a, it could be a mountain of hate in seconds. In no time, you know, there could be some serious discrimination against the Jewish people, it's already we've already seen it by other people. So even though right now we're not seeing it as a concern, you will see it as a concern. It is a concern for the future, that's for sure. Where Who are the arbiters of truth? How are we going to decide what's right and wrong, and who are the ones that are right to um, shut down these things? This is a big, big question that we need to ask, because it's going to come to us at some point, back at us. There's no question about it. We, somebody can get cancelled because they didn't serve a meal properly. There's no end to uh, how cancel culture can work and how dangerous this can be. And that's why I feel like it's a real issue and I wanted to speak about it and tie it into this week's portion which is so brilliant. So Shabbat tells me I'm free from my subjugation uh, subjugation to the physical world. And that's what I do every week. I'm like, hey, yo, this thing, get out of here. You know, I've been a slave to you all week. And finally, I could show my freedom by putting it away and, t- and say, hey, look who I am. I'm, I'm me. Let's face the real me. I can be free of this thing. And it actually gives you strength to continue the next week when somebody is able to actually. Fold their technology for a while, then it gives you strength to go back to it again with more of a clean mindset. Because if you're constantly on it, constantly on it, constantly on it, there's, you, you literally feel that slavery feeling. So when you're able to put it aside, you're like, oh wait, so I'm in control? Fine. Good. Now let me get back to work on Sunday again or Monday or whatever it is. But I had that freedom that I had on Shabbat. So we can free ourselves from the world that's whatever challenge you may think is in the world by, no matter what the situation is, by just turning the thing off and switching your mind into the right place. And that's exactly the story of Pharaoh. I want to, this is so mind-blowing how it fits in. You know, we we believe that whatever Torah portion is that week, it's 100% connected to what's going on in the world. And I see it, because I read the portion every week, and I'm deeply into it. Every single time you read the portion, you'll find secrets of what's going on in the world in the portion. And when I look at it, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is it. This is it. This is all about freedom. And this is the whole discussion, and it just like ties in so well. So what happened to the Jews? The Jews come to uh, Moses. The Jews are in. Enslaved, They were meant to be enslaved for 400 years. They get enslaved only for 210. And God says to Moses, it's time to free the people. They've been in slavery. God's got a lot of mercy. He holds back. doesn't He allows the world to run in its own way. But eventually, things go back into order. That's why evil, the, the goodies always win at the end. But there's a process. So after 210 years of slavery, God says, okay, I gotta, I'm going to let the people go, and I'm going to choose you, Moses. Moses was a shepherd, a very loving person, a caring person. He couldn't speak, which is a very powerful thing because it shows that the Jewish people became Jewish not by an influential leader. As I mentioned this last week, they came, the people, not through someone with the power of speech because then we can all say, oh, you see how they won? You see how they got out because they had a powerful speaker? No, there was someone who couldn't speak. No way of speaking. His lips couldn't come back together. A long story of why and how that happened. But he was a person that couldn't speak, which, by the way, also teaches us a great lesson that no matter what situation you're in, you can't be worse than Moses. And he came the leader of the Jewish people. No matter what situation you're in, it can't be that you can, you know, at least you can speak. Now, I'm nervous. I'm scared to speak in public. I'm, who says that you need to be great? If you have a speaking ability and a power to be able to influence people through your mouth. That's not the only way to become a great person. And that's what we learn from Moshe as well. So I want to just take you in to what happens here. So last week we learned this and it's really, really fascinating. So Moses says... I can't speak. How am I going to free the people? Hashem says, no, it's you. He shows him some miracles. And he's like, you're going to do this and you're going to save the people. Yeah. So Moses goes back to Egypt. He was away from Egypt. He comes back to Egypt. And he comes up to Pharaoh and he says, let our people go. And Pharaoh says, who is? He says, who sent you? He says, Hashem. yud K vav ke, which means an infinite being, a different type of God to what you've all been serving. You know, all these little idols that you serve. No, no, no. We've got one God who's involved in everything. And he told me to come. That's the yud Hey vav That's hidden in his name. So he says, who is Hashem that I will listen to him? Who is this guy? Who is God? The ultimate atheist. So um, Moses, said, Moses shows him some miracles. And he says, this is, this, is the, this is the punchline. Pharaoh says, you've got to bear with me because this is a mind-blowing idea. Pharaoh says, it must be, immediately after this, it must be that the people are, have time to think. I'm going to tell you the words. He starts calling all the workers. By the way, the same that happened in the Holocaust. Who were the people that were on top of the Jews? Who were the ones that were meant to watch over the Jews? Other, other Jews. Other Jews. It's exactly what Pharaoh did as well. He took. The people of ours to, subject, to make us work. So it kind of completely stripped and confused us. Completely within. Like our own people are going against us. Complete confusion. Exactly the same situation. So all these leaders who were appointed to enslave the Jews. Pharaoh goes to them and he tells them. Stop giving them. They were slaves. They had to do slave labor. And he says to them. Stop giving the Jewish people the bricks to make the buildings. Let them create the bricks themselves. You know, when you build a building, the bricks you order, they come and you have ready-made bricks. He says stop giving them bricks. Let's give them more work and they will have to start creating the bricks themselves through hay and whatever. They will have to because, let them harvest the, the hay and let them create from it bricks. And we're going to make them work harder. Why? Because they're, they're free. They're, they're too free. And that's why they're saying, let's go and serve God. That's why they're thinking of freedom. Make the work on them heavier. And then they won't think of their lies that they're trying to say. Listen to the language. And that's exactly what they did. They all went to the Jews and they said, listen, you're too loose. You're too free. We need to weigh on you the more work. So go and get grain. Go and get hay. You make the bricks and you start it from the beginning. And that's exactly what happened. And they all come back to Moses and they said, listen, Moses, look what happened. You made everything worse. Why did you do this? And Moses comes back to Hashem. And he says to Hashem, Why did you do so much bad to these people? You told me to come and save them. And look what happened. Pharaoh made it worse. Look how bad it is. What is going on here? So besides for Pharaoh being a brilliant psychologist, an evil psychologist, he realized that when you take, when you, when you take a person's freedom of time completely, when they're so busy in thinking of survival, they can't think of anything else. And that's exactly what happened in the Holocaust as well. It was you know, one of the things people say is, How did the Jews go to the Holocaust as um sheep to the slaughterhouse? Like, why didn't they fight back? First of all, many did. Second of all, it wasn't their country, like they were. They were in a country that they were citizens of and suddenly the leaders of that country turned against them. They didn't have their own power. So that's another answer. But there's another answer. The Germans put them into a situation where all they could think of is the next minute. They were so deeply involved in the slavery, so deeply involved in the slave labor, they couldn't think of anything else. Every, all they thought of was survival. What am I going to be eating for the next minute? What am I going to eat in an hour from now? How am I going to sleep? Why am I so cold? That's, that all they could think of was that moment because they were so, what we call, tarud. They were so busy in the, in the pain that they were in and their need to survive. And that's exactly what Pharaoh was doing here as well. So physically, what he was doing is he's subjugating the Jewish people so that they would never have uh, a second to think, and that's why they're thinking of freedom. But there's another message here as well. That's the physical explanation, but there's a spiritual explanation of this. And this, the Ramchar of Moshe Chaim Lutzata, a great Kabbalist, explains, and it literally puts everything together. He says like this, Pharaoh represents the evil inclination. That represents in us the desire to not do good. So we have in us the desire to do good, but then we also have the bodily desire which pulls us away from wanting to do good. The body's not bad, but there's like the the feeling of laziness, the feeling of anger, all these expressions are negative, right? And that what's driving me to do it? Judaism believes there's a Yetzer an inner desire that that pushes me to do that. Okay? So whether it's there's a discussion whether it's literally an angel on top of me or it's just an inner Intuition that we have. That's another discussion. But one thing's for sure Pharaoh represents spiritually our evil inclination. And the way that the evil inclination works is it pulls me into a place where I don't have time to think. Let's read the language of Ramosh Chaim Retata. I'm going to translate the words. I'm not going to read the Hebrew. Um, but listen to the words. He says, like this We all get to points where we're just running and chasing after our feet and our ways without having a moment within ourselves to think about what we're doing and where we're going. And then it ends up that we fall into places that are bad for us without us even seeing that we're falling into those places. And that's exactly one of the ways that the evil inclination works. It tricks our ways into continuously making us work harder and saying, I need to make more money. I need to work harder. More pain. And it it gets into your brain. It gets into your mind. It gets into your thoughts until you don't even have a moment to think or contemplate where you're going. Because the evil creation knows that if you would have a moment where you'd have that thought, that reflection, you would completely stop your way. You would turn a different direction and you would start changing your ways you'd have regret, and then you'd overcome it, and then eventually you'll leave the way that's not good for you completely. And that's exactly what Pharaoh did to the Jewish people. He said, let's increase the work on the people. What does that mean? He intended to not even let them have a moment where they can think so that they can actually come up with ways to fight against him. Isn't this amazing? He wanted to just try and take their hearts completely away with everything so that they will never have a moment. That's how the evil inclination works on people. It's a battle and it learns the trick of the battle. And it's very hard to run away from it without any real thinking, looking, wisdom. And that's why in Judaism it says, it says in the prophets in many areas, be aware of what you're doing in life. Don't just be a follower. You have to have conscious awareness of what life is doing. Where are you in life? Don't just let your eyes take you in any direction. Be like a deer that runs or turns in the other direction immediately. This is what our rabbis say. Anyone who has a plan in his path in life, in this world, will see great salvations. Will see great success in this world and the next. And it's obvious that a person who opens his eyes, if you don't open your eyes, then Hashem can't help you. Meaning, you have to start the initial process. And once you do start the initial process, we believe you will have actually spiritual energy that helps you to overcome some of those challenges as well. But you need to start the process. You know, uh, you can't help yourself until... you can't. No one can help you until you help yourself, right? If you don't help yourself first, no one can help you. If you're not going to eat the food, no one can feed it to you. It's just that's how it works. So that's how our life works as well. And if you don't care for yourself, no one will. That's the free will that we're in. So that's the way of the evil inclination. So there's two ways. Physically, the way was increase the work so they don't think. Spiritually, the way is increase. His busyness, so he can't think. And that's how it is in our day and age. Why do you think meditations are popular? I think meditations are really important today. Why do you think they're so popular in 2020? It's getting more popular as time goes on. But meditation is a real thing that's picking up. Everyone wants to do it more. And I think part of it is because I'm getting to recognize where myself is. Like, who am I? I, I'm so distracted By the race, you can call it the rat race, but the it's a rat race. It used to be a rat race to make money. Now it's a rat race to just be online. You know, it's not even it's not even necessarily going to get me anywhere. And by the way, when I'm speaking, I'm not speaking to everyone else. I'm talking to myself. I'm aware of the. I'm living in the times. I'm I'm aware of the current situation in the world. Like our distractions, it's real. You can have somebody on his phone whilst the TV's playing. And he's with his family, and they're on the phones as well. I'm like, "What's the TV on for?" <laughs> you know, everyone's on the phones and the TV. How distract that makes my head hurt just to think of it. So, um, if we're not aware of where we're holding, then no one's going to help us. So, I believe that the there are three dangers in the internet. Remember this: there's three dangers of. The internet now. There's many benefits we all hope to get them. That's why I'm not going to talk about the benefits because it's kind of obvious. It can help us bring us together. It can help us um, uh, succeed, get our name out more, find a job. It's helped us find all all the Jews. So it's definitely done, and it will do much more great things. There's no question about it. So to tell me, tell you what's positive about the internet is obvious, but We have to be aware of the dangers of them so we don't fall in its trap because it's going to be the new talk of the day. You know, when you talk to someone and he says, I'm busy, I'm so busy. You know, I have, thank God, I have a wife and five kids and, you know, both of us, me and Shira, between taking them to school and changing and looking after them and everything. So people always think I'm so busy. And the truth is I am kind of busy, but I hate saying that word. I hate saying I'm busy. I try as much as I can to say, no, 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 I'm not busy. Even though sometimes I arrive on a meeting 15 minutes late and the guy's waiting. That's just because of due time. But I, I always try and say, I'm not busy. I'm, I'm here, it, I'll make it work. No, I'm not busy, it's fine, it's fine. Because people think that I'm so busy and I'm really, I really believe that I want to show that. The, but why do we keep saying that? Why do we say we're so busy? Things are actually meant to be more convenient for us than it ever was. We have washing machines. Do you know what it was like to wash your clothes with your hands? We don't need to do that anymore. We have hot water. We don't need to heat the water. It does it for us. You tell me, why should we be busier today than ever before? The opposite. As convenience grows, things are done for us more. I don't need to go to the library anymore. I could just search on a Google search whatever I'm studying, and I'll get the file immediately. It used to be i go to the library, print it, copy it, take it home, and then put it into my thesis. Today, I have it all on file. It's all online in a search. It's not even a search. You can press the voice button, and you speak, and it will tell you the response. Alexa's got so great. It could do things for you. It turns on the lights for you. So why are we all saying that we're so busy? What are we so busy with? And the answer is we're busy with our time being taken away by other things that are not necessary. Even if we think they're necessary, they're not really necessary. So here goes um, the three dangers of the internet. One is promiscuity, the availability of pornography and um, objectifying. It's not just that, but it's the idea of objectifying physicality. So easily is a big, big danger because it doesn't let us look at people for who they are. It trains us to look at people for what they can offer me. Oh, this is a body. I don't even care who the person is. right? So the the idea of promiscuity, the reason why it's so dangerous and that Judaism is so aware of it, it's not because we're anti-sexual at all. It's not ex- that's the opposite. Judaism believes that sex is a holy thing. You know that. It's called yasod, the foundation. It's that, you know, the holiest place in the house? The holiest place in your home is your bedroom. That's what Judaism believes. That's an interesting statement. We believe it's the Kodesh Kodashim, that's the holiest place. That's, when, that's where the world is created, that's where real uh, people are created. It's the holiest place in the world. So we're not anti sexual, we're anti objectifying physicality. In a way where we don't look at the inner core of somebody, but we only look at the external for what they can offer me, as opposed to for who what that person really is. Is any of this making sense to anyone? Yeah, it's good. So, um, what was I saying? So I want I wanted to say that there's three dangers of the internet. One's promiscuity, the other is negativity, and that spreads really quickly. You can have some kind of um, Made up, you know, conspiracy theory, and it just blows up everywhere, all over the internet. There was a story recently of a guy, a dude, who was in a jetpack right by the the planes in LA. You remember that story that came out? They found this guy who was on a jetpack. He was wearing this jacket, and he's flying right next to the planes. The FBI is looking for him. It came out that it was just a guy with a green screen, and he somehow managed to add it to some kind of video and it just went viral and then everyone was wondering where's this who was this guy fbi is researching you can make the most ridiculous fake thing through the internet by changing someone's face using someone else's voice there's a lot of negative if i want to find a bunch of people that are dangerous like me i'll find that bubble online very easily and actually social media The way that the internet works is it helps me find that negativity. So a negative person will come even more negative because whatever I search for is now recommended to me. So I'm kind of building, it's one of the dangers is I'm building that social bubble of my negative world that I'm actually creating through my searches and through my thoughts. Suddenly all my friends and all the things that are advertised to me and everything that I'm looking at is all surrounding the negativity that I originally had. And it's glorifying it. I'm building this massive bubble of negativity around my own negativity. It's just growing. You understand how it's dangerous? So negativity is a real thing. You know, if somebody has a problem with his parents, go online. Find every other kid with a problem with, the, with your parents. And there you go. See? This is how it is. I have a problem with my parents. And it gets around. Do, do you guys get what's going on here? It, and then I'll learn. Instead of working and making my relationship with my parents work, I'll learn to fight them uh, because that's what everyone else is doing. And I found a bubble of all people that are doing the same thing, fighting them. So I'll do the same. I'm building my bubble of negativity through online platforms. So you have promiscuity. You have negativity. But there's a third thing that is a danger of the internet. And we have some new people, but I want to make sure you understand. Yes, we have the danger of the internet, but there's also a lot of positive things. We're talking about the challenges right now because we need to be aware of them. So there's promiscuity, there's negativity, and then there's time. Time in a world that we're in, in a very materialistic world, is considered as money. Time is money. But we actually consider that time is life every second that a person is alive is valuable to us. Right? We learned this yesterday when we were talking about the vaccine, how you live in this world. It says, By metim the, the dead are free. What are they free of? Torah and mitzvot. They can't do anything. Once someone dies, there's just the, that's all they are. They, so the world of creativity is in this world. You, life is only valuable to us in this world. It's much easier to die than to live. Much easier to die than live. Live is real work. Every second is coping with your situation, coping with your challenges, financial challenges, whatever it is. Much easier to just die than than work, than live. Live is real work every second. That's what I say. We prefer to live for God than die for God. For those that think that it's better to die for God, tell them real martyrdom, is to live for God, not die for it. So there are three dangers. Which one do you think is the greatest of those three? Promiscuity, negativity, or time? Negativity. I, because negativity? I'm back. Promiscuity, time. Time is the worst. Based on our way of thinking, time is the number one. Here's a point I'll tell you. We spoke about this also yesterday. If somebody, you know, we can transgress Shabbat to save someone's life. If somebody's about to die in a minute from now, he's only got a minute left to live, and suddenly the building falls on top of him, and you could save him for three more seconds, meaning if you would break some bricks, transgress Shabbat, You'll be able to make that person live for a few more seconds. Are you allowed to break Shabbat for that person? He's going to die in a minute anyway. The answer is you're allowed to break Shabbat to save someone, even if they're going to live for only another second. Because one second spiritually is a massive thing. They can it means make tshuva in that time. you can make chuvah in that time. A person can regret all his bad that he did. That's huge. You know, you can write a will. You could say who your money wants to go to. In that one second. You can you could do so much in a second, spiritually. So, mainly the idea is Teshuvah. Also, another idea is about marriage. A person could say, Behold, you are married to me on condition that I am a righteous person. And we all know that this person is very evil. So, he says to a girl, goes down on his knees, takes out the ring, he says, Behold, you are betrothed to me. On condition that I am righteous. You're allowed to make a condition to a documented marriage. Right? Marriage is a form of document. It's an agreement. So you're allowed to make the condition. If you say, on condition that I am a righteous person. Five minutes ago, I saw him stealing. I saw him running around. I saw him killing. I saw theft. I saw murder. I saw the worst things ever. And now he's saying, behold, you are betrothed to me. On condition that I am righteous. Is Is he married? Does the marriage work, or has it been annulled? What do you think? Does she have to accept? <laughs> does she have to accept? Well, if she does accept, does the marriage work? That's the question. I, I guess so. The answer is yes. Isn't that interesting? An absolute evil person. We all know this person is evil. And he says, I will, will you marry me on condition that I'm righteous? Yes. Why? Because maybe he, maybe he thought to become a better person. And that's already the, that's the first process. Maybe he said to himself, I'm going to change right now. And that thought process is the beginning to the end. You have to change somewhere. So that, that he's righteous. That minute that the person says, I want to switch my ways, boom. You're changing. You're going in a different direction, and the marriage works. It's very interesting. So time is everything. We think of it as nothing, but from spiritual terms, time is everything. And that's what we're seeing as well in this Torah portion, is when my time is preoccupied with so much that I'm not able to think at all. Okay, I want to just go in. To one or two more points, because um, it's so mu- there's so much to learn here in this week. We are now in the week of Va'era, where seven of the ten plagues happen in this week's portion. And I want to talk a bit about those plagues that happen and continue to, con- to tie in to what we've been speaking about. So, we just said that Moses says, why did you do this? he goes to God and he says, God, you told me to save the Jewish people. I tried to save them and look how much things came worse. Pharaoh said, make them work harder. He says hard words to God. He he turns around and he says, Why? Obviously, God's not physical. But it was a vision. He says, Why are you so cruel to this people? And Hashem says to him, and that's how this week's portion starts. He says to, says to him, God spoke to him harshly. Rashi says, there's two ways of speaking. One is to speak and one's to say. Which one do you think is harder? Which one's more difficult? Speech or words that you say? When I speak or I say something, which one sounds a bit more tough? Anyone know? Are you with me? To speak. Speaking means that you're saying something really tough. So God starts answering. That's how this Torah portion starts. God answers back to Moses. He says, He speaks to him in a tough way. And his name here is called Elohim. Elohim means strength. El. El means strength. Him means plural, plural. The strength of all strengths. That's what it says, yesh la'el yadi, I have the power in my hand. El means strength. Elohim is plural, because God is not many. There's, not, there's only one God, but He's the strength of all strengths in this world. So any energy that you see all comes from that original strength, that oneness of Hashem. Okay? So that's why His name is Elohim. But His name is also, the name of Hashem is also yud hey vav and hey, Right? yod hey, vav and hey. We never pronounce that word properly. We say a different word. What does Yud? So that's what he says. God speaks to Moshe in the name of Elohim. Harshly. Rashi says, He speaks to him in a harsh language because he spoke diff- He said, Why were you so cruel to this people? So Hashem responds in a hard way. And then he says to him in a soft way, I am Hashem. I am the Yud Hei Vav Yudhei Vavhei represents Haya, Hover, Vehiyyah. It's a combination of three words was, is, and will be. That's beyond the physical. It's the past, present, and future. How can you con- conceive an idea of something which is past, present, and future all at the same time? But that's what we understand that God is. So he says, I am Hashem. Hashem represents Rachamim, mercy. When you say that name, Yudhei Vavhei, it represents mercy because it means past, present, and future all in one. We can't see the future, and that's why things seem difficult to us, because we don't know what's going to be in the future. But if I had the name yud Vavanhei vav properly in front of me, I would recognize that there's all past, present, and future is all one big reality. And my reality is not the real reality. And when I'm able to really contemplate on that idea, I recognize that there's mercy in this world. I just don't see the fullest picture. So what does Hashem say? Hashem says to him in a hard way and then stops speaking to him in a soft way. He says, I am Hashem. By the way, that's a very powerful way of us also in terms of how we respond to people that are speaking in a very angry language. How do you respond? You don't respond straight away trying to calm them down. You respond loud and then you go down with them. You take their highness with you. You're like, ah, you go down with them. I just want to explain to you something. And when they're in a height of anger, you lift up your voice slightly. Go. You don't do it from the other side of the house. You go to them. Lift up your voice slightly, and then you lower your voice as well at the same time. Till you lower their mood with you. You bring their mood down. They calm down. That's how you do it. So that's what happened here. Hashem starts responding in a harsh language and then says, I am Hashem. I am what represents past, present, and future. You can't see the whole picture. And if you're asking me, why is it that I'm so, this is such a difficult thing, why is it that Pharaoh made it more difficult? Our rabbis explain why Pharaoh made it really more difficult. Do you know why Pharaoh really made it more difficult? Yeah, he was thinking as a psychologist, if I make, them, make it more difficult for them, they won't have time to think. But you know why Pharaoh made it more difficult the last minutes? Because really the Jews were meant to be in Egypt for 400 years. And Hashem reduced it to only 210. And in order to reduce the uh, slavery, what he did was, he made it very hard at the end. So that would, that would make up. For the 400 years. A very difficult challenge towards the end. So that would make up for what they were meant to have. So that they can have a shorter time. And really be freed earlier. The message is that. When I see something difficult. I'm like why is this happening? And really this is happening to save me. From another whole world that I don't even see. Right. That's what's happening with the Jewish people. They suddenly had this difficult challenge. And they're like why is this happening? And really the picture was. That. It was to reduce their 400 years to 210. That's why it went more difficult. And this can actually be shown in a story. I want to tell you a story of a, the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel who passed away in 2013, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a big, big rabbi. And Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, when he was dating, a very, we're talking about at least 80, 85 years ago, uh, he was dating even before the state of Israel. Uh, and he passed away in 2013. He he eventually married. He he had 12 children, and each one of those children are rabbis. One of his sons is a rabbi today, as is the chief rabbi of Israel today. Rabbi Vadya Yosef, tremendous. You can study about him. Tremendous man. Knew the whole Torah inside out. One of the greatest of our past generation. And he married this lady called Margalit, but before he got married, he was actually dating, and he went out with this girl, They got engaged. It went great. They got engaged. And just before the wedding, she says to him, um, let's go to the movies. Now, look, it's on the level that he was on. Okay, you may not understand this, but this was the level that he was on. And he says, what do you mean? I want to study Torah. Why would I go and waste my time watching a movie? And 80 years ago, a movie was a lot cleaner than the movies of today. What do you mean? Why should I spend my time watching a movie? I want to study more Torah. I I just want to study. That's all I want to do is study, come wise. There's nothing else in life besides for that. So she says to him, listen, either you become normal and go to the movies with me, or we're calling off the wedding. This is a week before the wedding. Um, Rabavadir says, it's not me. Like, this is... I'm not sure if you understand who you're getting married to. It's just not me. I want you to know that this is really not me. And eventually she pulls off the wedding and she takes him to Jewish court. And she says that he has to pay her for all the time. And he wasn't being honest, uh, whatever. So the rabbi uh, commits and he says, I'll give the money, whatever she needs. But I can't marry because that's not me. I need to be real with myself. And the man who I am is someone who really wants to commit my life to studying Torah day and night. I'm not a person that wants to go to the movies. And if that's what she wants, it's not me. So he paid the money. And that was it. He started giving her money every month. And he moved on. It was obviously for a certain period of time that he had to pay. her. He moved on. He got married to his real wife, Margalit, her name was. And Rabovadiyah Yosef got married, had 12 kids, came the giant that he was, wrote many, many books. Many of the books I have on on my wall here were written by him. And three years before he passes away, 2010, knocks on his door an old lady. He's a very, very old man, and this lady is also a very old lady. Knocks on his door an old lady. She pushes away to come in. Thousands of people come to visit the rabbi every day for blessings. She pushes away to come in, and she says, tell the rabbi his first date is here. This is a date from 80 years. So they go running to the rabbi. They say, your first date is here. So the rabbi says, bring her in, bring her in. She comes in, a tremendously old lady, old great-grandchildren. And she says to him, uh, rabbi, please, I, I don't have any money. And I don't know how to pay my paycheck and my rent and everything. Will you be able to help me? Now, the Talmud says that when somebody who studies Torah in poverty will eventually study Torah in wealth. You hear that? Somebody who studies Torah during time of poverty will study Torah in wealth later on in time. Rabbi Vadya Yosef studied Torah in absolute poverty where he would have a candle that, uh, as a light under a table so that he could study Torah. That's why at the end of his life he could barely see. He was living in absolute poverty. So towards the end of his life, though, he came very, very wealthy. His books got distributed everywhere. Very, very wealthy. And this lady says, I don't have any money, nothing to pay my rent, nothing. Please help me. Rabbi Vadya said, no problem. And he started giving her a monthly income. Directly from the rabbi. Rabbi organized from some of his uh, people that work there. And they started giving her a monthly income. And she walks, she starts walking out the room. Last minute she turns back. And she comes running back to the rabbi. And she says to him, Rabbi, mazal It's a great luck that you have that you didn't marry me. And the rabbi says, why? And she says, because after we broke off, I got married and I found out from the doctors that I don't have a womb. I have no ability to have children. And if you would have married me, you would never have had the family that you created. So this is a story that's told by Rabbi Vadia's son, Rabbi Tzachak Yusuf, who is still alive today. And here's a story where a week before a wedding, wedding got broken off and he could have easily said why is this happening to me why you know well, how how is this happening but he said no i'm standing on myself i'm standing on my morals on my principles and this is what i am i'm not going to break it and eventually by standing up for his principles the right thing happened in his life looking back 80 years he looked and he can say that that was the best thing that could have happened to me now the wisdom is not to say Oh, 80 years later on, look how it was good for me. The wisdom to say, when I'm in the darkness, when I'm under the tunnel, and I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, to say that there will be light when I get, there's going to be light soon. There's going to be light soon. I don't see it, but there will be light soon. That's wisdom. It's not wise to say, only after 80 years, look how it all worked out. It's wisdom to say, when it's not working out, that I'm sure there's light at the end of the tunnel. That's emunah. When it's not working out, saying, "Hakol Everything is for the good. And that's exactly what Hashem says. God spoke harsh in Din. And then He said, I am Hashem. Really, I am Hashem. What He's saying is, what appears to be Din, what appears to be strict, what appears to be hard, is really, if you look at the real picture, it's really soft. It's not what you think. So in your life, that's what Judaism really s- believes in. And we need to strengthen this daily. That what appears to be a challenge is really Hashem. And that's why when we say Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Listen, Israel. Hashem is Elohim. The Hayah Oveve yeah, the was, is, will be, is what's difficult in our life. What doesn't make sense is all coming from the same place. And it's all for the good. We just don't see the full picture. We don't see the was, is, and will be, and therefore we're suffering in our own mind. But what you're meant to do, and that's what Emunah does, and that's—I repeat this a lot—and you'll see this story happening a lot because this needs to be something we instill in the back of our mind for our benefit, for the way that we live. Because you can't cope with the challenges of life if you don't think like this. It's—it's really—it's like—it's like the. It's like the oxygen for our for our living. Is to really deeply contemplate this idea that yes, right now it's painful, but it's all good. It's all for the good. Someone, Rabbi Noach Weinberg, the founder of Eish, before he was passing away, he couldn't breathe. He was like, he uh, couldn't breathe, and he was he had a few hours to live. And his son comes up to him and he says, "Why is God doing this?" And with the last bits of strength, he slaps his son on the back and he says. Quiet. It's all love. It's all love. It's all love. And not long after that, he passes away. That's, that's the right mindset that a person needs to have. And the truth is, that's what we know is real. It really is all love. We just don't see the bigger picture, so we don't understand it. And when someone's able to live like that, they're able to continue with their life and not give up on their life. It, it's, it's the air... It's the oxygen for life, is Emunah. If I would look at the spiritual worlds, what would I compare Emunah to? I'd compare it to, to air. Because without oxygen, we can't live. Without Emunah, we can't live. And we need it to survive. And that's what Hashem's saying. That's the Shema. We say Hashem's name three different times. What are we doing? We're basically saying that there's Din and there's Rachamim, there's mercy, where I understand the picture, and there's in, which is judgment, when I don't understand the picture. You know, sometimes a parent says no to the child, and the child's like, why? And the child says, the father says, listen, my son, it's too complicated for me to explain it to you. I can't explain to you why, because you won't understand, but you have to trust me. I know that I see the bigger picture. I understand how all these things work. I I know you need to go to the doctor, and I know it's going to be painful for a minute, but he's going to help you. But why? Why, Daddy? Why are you taking me there? So painful. And I'm like, you can't understand the way that the system works, but I've studied it a little bit more. I've lived life a bit longer than you. I see the bigger picture. So the why is the child. And the the one that understands the bigger picture is the person that says, is the father. It's like the adult. And what we've got to do is treat our living in this world as I'm the child versus The creator of the universe who knows the past, present, and future, who is the real adult. That's the way to live. Otherwise, we can't live in this world. It's too painful. This is our survival. This is our air. Anyway, I'm going to finish with one more thing, which is the hitting of the water. The first plague we know was water. And there's so much depth behind it. But I want to go through some of the lessons that we can have in life, right? So that's why, just the last, last point, and then we'll finish off. So Moses goes, and Hashem says, okay, you're going to have to, Pharaoh doesn't listen. He says, Pharaoh says, go away, leave me. And Hashem says, okay, go to Pharaoh in the morning, by the river. Pharaoh made himself a god. He pretended that he never needed the bathroom. He would wait 24 hours. This is what he would go through in order to show that he's a god. Can you imagine what people would do in order to get some fame? Pharaoh would be willing to say for 24 hours, he would hide the fact that he would go to the, to the bathroom. I was about to say toilet, I'm from England. And he would run to the river early, early morning, just before it get, gets morning, and run to the river at 20, every 24 hours, and he will do his business then. Otherwise, never at any other time, so that people will think of him as a God. And he would run to the river, and God says to him, go there, go to the river. When he's about to do his business, And in that moment, tell him, send the people, otherwise I'll hit the water, and it will turn into blood. Right? And we know that the water didn't just turn into blood. The fish died. It started smelling. There was many things that were going to happen. Within each plague, there were many plagues. I I don't want to get into why it was water first. It's it's, uh, fascinating. It all goes together with the 10 points of creation, and each one of those kind of uh, fits into another point of Creation. But what I do want to know, what I tell you is what happened. Instead of him telling Moshe to hit the water, he tells Moshe, take Aaron, tell Aaron to hold the stick, and ask Aaron, your brother, to hit the water. Why? Why did he say tell Aharon to hit the water? And our rabbis say something very, very interesting. Tell Aaron to hit the water with the stick. Why? Because the river saved Moses. He was thrown into it when he was a little baby in a basket and that same river saved him. Therefore, <laughs> the, the blood plague was not through Moshe. The frog plague which is to do with the water was also not through Moshe. and the, uh, And also the earth when he had to hit the earth That also was not through Moshe, it was through his brother Aaron. Why? Because those were the things that saved him. The water saved him, the earth saved him as well. When he had to hit that person that he killed, that's another story. But the water saved Moses. It saved Moses. So God says, you don't hit the water. And that is a very powerful lesson as well, which is giving gratitude. What's the gratitude that we need to have? The rabbis say, A pit, a well that you drink water from, don't throw a stone into it. You just drank from it. How can you throw a stone into it? You just benefited from the water. Why are you throwing a stone into the water? You have to have a kerat for the water that you drank. And this is very strange. The reason it's strange is because, we know that water doesn't have feelings. Earth doesn't have feelings. So, why would it? Who cares if the water saved Moses? Who cares? Oh, the water saved you, so don't hit the water. Do you think the water cares? Do you think the water has feelings? Because gratitude's not about the person you're doing it to. It's about you, it's about your inner self, what you become. And what happens to us is if we train ourselves even in inanimate objects to show our gratitude for them i eat bread don't just throw it on the floor respect it put it in a bag and then throw it out whatever's left over right what i do is i show gratitude even to inanimate objects then what happens is you'll have gratitude for humans as well even stronger and it's a very powerful lesson because gratitude is not about who you're doing it to. It's also about what it makes you. When I am ungrateful to somebody, it's not because I owe it to that person. I owe it to myself. Because when I'm ungrateful to my, within myself to the water that saves me, let's say, then I am hurting my own being and the way I work with people. Gratitude is the number one to survival also in terms of getting on with people. If I don't have gratitude, I cannot get on with people. I'll hate my school. I'll hate my parents. I'll hate my spouse. Everything. And you should know that gratitude is hardest in a place where your family is. It's hardest to give gratitude to where it's needed most. And this, by the way, is a key to marriage. I know that you're not married, but in relationships and hopefully when you do get married, the key to marriage, one of the keys to marriage is gratitude. What happens is, in marriage, is that we get used to each other. And we take whatever the other side does for us for granted. But if I would, let's say, calculate um, married for 11 years. Calculate all the times that food was cooked for me. Calculate all the time that my clothes was washed for me. Yeah, or my wife would calculate all the time that I did things for her. Whether it's going to get the shopping, or organizing things, or whatever it is. And Pay that person. Think about how much, it, how much money that's worth to hire someone to do that for you. Right? How much money would it be? I think back 11 years and look and say, all that time that she cooked for me, all that time that she, right? How much money is that worth? A lot of money. So how can I ever, how can I ever argue? How can somebody argue with their spouse? And you know what? Sp- arguing is a huge reality. Over 50% 50% of people get divorced. We get used to each other and then we criticize. We focus on the, the problems. There's a rule when it comes to criticism. If you give a criticism, give five compliments. For every one criticism you give, give five compliments to meet up with it. It's a rule, okay? Whenever you just know, whenever you give a criticism, give five compliments, especially to someone that's closest to you. Because it's like taking money out of a bank, which is in zero. You have no money in your bank, and you're now, cri- you're now criticizing. Your bank's on zero. You're taking out more money? You cu- you've got to build up money in your account first to be able to throw out some, to spend some. So, in order to throw a comment of criticism, you have to have value to yourself first, which is to show some kind of compliment as well. What I'm trying to say is that when it comes to Hakarat Ator, and we see this from many of our rabbis and the stories to prove this, but when we have gratitude, it really is translated into areas of those that are closest to us. Gratitude does not start with people that are in the street, that you're walking down and they happen to be nice and pick something up for you. One time, you're never going to see them again. That's not your parents that have done it day after day, cooking you eggs before you can even cook your own right so hakaratato really starts in our own home and with those that are really closest to and we learn that from water when i even think about inanimate objects inanimate objects don't throw a stone in a pit which has water that you drank from does the pit feel no it doesn't but you feel it changes you so the actions that we do can actually have an impact on how we feel not necessarily. It's not necessarily about the person that it's to. It's about me. And our aim is to strengthen ourselves in terms of gratitude as well. It's such an important value. So my blessing to everybody is: enjoy the freedom of Shabbat, the freedom of technology, um, in terms of at least allowing yourself to know that you are in control of you, and never. fall into that trap. Try your best. Make your time that you don't fall into that trap where you're always so busy that you don't have time for your real self. Um, Because life is too short to go through it and look back and say, oh my goodness, I was so busy with doing everything else besides for living. No one wants to do that. So take charge and be free right now. Bye. Maybe doing Shabbat, you know. I am a rabbi after all. You can do Shabbat, that can help. But um, also gratitude and the power of recognizing that even though things can be difficult, there is a bigger picture. That's the idea of Elohim and Hashem. That's the day of Elohim versus yud heh vav and he, that we don't see. By the way, we're not allowed to say yud Vavanhei. vav and We never pronounce that word. Because it represents the idea that we cannot see the future. If I was able to be outside of the physical world, I'd be able to say that word. Obviously not physically, I'd be able to comprehend that word properly. But because I'm in a physical world, I can't see the future. I only say Elohim, I only say Adnut. I don't say the yud heh Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed.